Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 3. Offering honey crumb granola, cinnamon monkey bread, and vegetarian quiche. Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. The largest evolutionary time tree of land plants was recently created by a team of researchers in order to investigate how flowering plants survive freezing temperatures. My name is Daniel McGlynn, and I am a postdoctoral researcher in the biology department at Utah State. McGlynn contributed to the geographic and climate data for this project, which looked at how plants have evolved from early tropical and humid habitats to withstand the cold temperatures of modern climates. McGlynn joins us to discuss this project and also his work in macroecology. So I did my doctoral work at Oklahoma State uh, University, and then before coming to Utah State, I was a postdoc at University of North Carolina, and that's where I first became involved with the current research um, that I'm going to be talking to you about today. And my area of expertise is really biodiversity, primarily on plants and birds and in particular, thinking about uh, what's referred to as macroecology, or really big patterns in ecology. Can you discuss your interest in ecology and biodiversity and what drives your research? What really interests me in uh, biodiversity and macroecology in general is that there's such a high degree of complexity and different processes that shape patterns of biodiversity and macroecology. But despite that, we tend to still see really strong kind of consistent patterns that show up across taxonomic groups and across habitat types. And these really general patterns are just very fascinating from a research perspective because it really begs the question, why? why? Why is this? We know that, for example, plants are very different biologically than birds. But why do their patterns of diversity look very similar oftentimes? And by understanding these general patterns, it might give us better clues into predicting how biodiversity will change in the future. And that's really the, what kind of guides my research. When did this interest start for you? I got interested in biology uh, as a child, really uh, going hiking. And I've always had a field component to my research. And um, that's really what got me excited about ecology was as a kid, I'd always just kind of thought natural systems were beautiful and interesting and complex, but I didn't think there was any rules that kind of governed them. And so I was just really excited when I discovered that actually there's a whole science that, that kind of unravels how forest changes through time or how populations of organisms self-regulate themselves. Um, to think that there's order in that was just really interesting and it's kind of really kind of led me my whole way into to trying to discover what those rules are and, and what governs these patterns we often see in nature. What patterns emerge that you see from diversity? At the global scale, we often tend to see that organisms tend to be most diverse at the equator, for example. That's just one, one really general pattern. And there are certain exceptions to this. For example, salamanders are an interesting exception, where their center of diversity actually is in the temperate region. But for the most part, um, this kind of equatorial high band of diversity really brings up a lot of interesting explanations. So is it something to do with temperature itself that drives diversity, or does it have to do with greater resources or greater stability 
these are questions biologists have been fascinated with for a really long time, all the way from um, the time of Darwin. And it's just one example of kind of the surprising similarity that tends to, to occur across biological um, taxonomic groups. There's other, there's other examples. For example, um, when we go up a mountain, we tend to see, in across different groups, we tend to see that most diversity is kind of in the middle of the mountain, typically. Um, at the higher elevation, we have the lowest amount of diversity, and at the lowest, in the lower elevation, very lowest elevations, very low diversity. But in that inter intermediate elevations, it tends to be where we see a lot of different, both birds and plants and uh, fungi and all sorts of different things that have that intermediate pattern. So those are just a couple of the examples of, of kind of generality that we do see and that we'd really like to understand better. And macroecology provides us a lens to try to address those and understand why we, why we see these generalities. I understand the, the Time Tree Project is not your primary work. Can you talk about what you and the other researchers were trying to accomplish and, and what questions you were pursuing with this work? The question we wanted to know is why and how do plants um, tolerate freezing? It's thought, and we're really thinking about flowering plants primarily. So not your conifers, not your evergreens, but these are your plants like your magnolias and your tulips and your maple trees, things like that. Um, those, are the, those are the groups we're really interested in. And we're wondering, well, evolutionarily, it's thought that they originated in the tropics in very warm conditions. And they were woody. They tended to be woody plants. But now we see this vast array of uh, structural adaptations that these flowering plants show. And we're thinking that some of that diversity has something to do with their ability to tolerate cold. So, for example, um, some of the plants are herbaceous. That's one adaptation that our analysis shows is an adaptation towards um, seasonal freezing. In other words, if your above-ground part can't adapt to um, tolerate freezing, it's, it's a, a good strategy to just lose your above-ground stem into overwinter as either an underground stem or a seed. And so that's one adaptation that was really critical to uh, flowering plants adapting to freezing. Another important adaptation is that they basically became deciduous, which means that they drop their leaves in the winter. And this is an interesting adaptation because this adaptation actually evolved after plants um, arrived in the, in the freezing zone. So unlike herbaceousness, which evolved before plants migrated north, deciduousness actually, our analysis shows, it evolved after the fact. Another, the third strategy is um, that these plants have shown is that they change their vascular system. And so evolutionarily, plant, these plants were in very warm, humid regions, and they had very large um, pipes, very large diameter pipes to conduct water. These pipes are great for distributing resources, but they're very vulnerable to freezing because you can have a pocket of air get trapped in them, and then that pocket of air can basically damage the pipe and make it, in, make it um, not work. And so one of the adaptations that these plants had to evolve was narrower piping systems that were more resistant to basically freezing and, and thawing. You identified the order of evolutionary events. And for example, woody plants became herbs before being able to move into freezing climates. What did you learn about plant adaptations? One of the things our analysis sheds light on is the ordering of these adaptations. And that's, that's something we haven't had as much information on. And our analysis showed that 
um, prior to plants moving into freezing zones, they tended, you know, if one adaptation they might have before they make that move is being herbaceous. And the other adaptation was also the smaller conducting vas vascular system. Um, the deciduous adaptation was the one that really came after the fact. So plant, the, these clades of plants, they migrated north, and then once they were really exposed to freezing, um, there, there was a very strong pressure, a selective pressure, to evolve this deciduous trait. For those clades that were not able to do that, they, they most likely went extinct. And what was your role specifically on the project? My role in the project was really in getting the geographical uh, information on all of our plant species. And so we had about 30,000 plant species, and we needed to know where on the earth those plants were located um, in present day. And GBIF, or the Global Biodiversity Information Facility, provided a, a repository of information on where those plants have been recorded as existing. And um, this is a very large uh, a project that GBIF, and they aggregate data from herbaria all over the world. And so, you know, a local plant collector might deposit their specimen into a local collection, and then that, that larger herbaria provides their data to GBIF. So from that organization, we got 47 million records. And um, from those records, we were able to derive where on the earth those plants occurred, and from that information, we basically combined that, combined that information with climate information to infer what, whether or not that plant could tolerate freezing. If it occurred in an area that exp was exposed to freezing, we assumed that, yes, it was adapted to that condition. If it did not, then we assumed that it was not actually adapted to freezing. And that's how that was a really important component of this, of this overall project. How much can you learn from just the leaf of a plant. The twig might even be more informative, actually, <laughs> than the leaf. You know, the leaf actually can tell you a lot. Oftentimes with the leaf, you can at least tell if it's an evergreen leaf or if it's a deciduous leaf. Um, oftentimes, evergreen leaves are very thick and, and tend to have like a waxy coating on them because the plant is involved, investing a lot of resources into that leaf. They want to keep that leaf all year round and they want to protect it from it being eaten or frozen or any of these you know, there's a lot that could happen to that leaf. Whereas a deciduous plant, they really don't invest as many resources and they try to grow as big of a leaf as possible as quickly as possible because they need to get that out in the spring, get it collecting sunlight and, um, process, you know, processing resources before they, that leaf basically goes dormant and falls off the tree. So oftentimes, yeah, we, when given a leaf, you can at first um, kind of make a call of this is probably a deciduous thing. With the twig, what you'll be able to do is look at the size of the vascular tissue. And so if you, if you cut that twig longitudinally and you sanded that down and put it underneath a microscope, you'd be able to look at how big the vessels are. And basically what our research shows is that a lot of these um, plant families that are adapted to freezing have fairly small vascular tissues relative to the things that we see in the tropics. And that was one of the really key adaptations. Also, it's very possible that you'd be able to tell whether or not the plant is an herb or not. If it's, you know, with the twig, if the twig is woody, you know, best bet is that it does have secondary above ground stems and it does not die back every year. Um, most herbaceous, um, herbaceous plants that are dying back at the end of the year, they don't lay down any woody tissue. And so um, that would be, you'd also be able to tell that. So you'd be able to tell a lot from just a little bit of information. It really would fit into 
being able to understand this plant probably can withstand freezing. It's not going to be as big of a problem. How do you use the fossil plant record? We utilize the fossil record primarily for constructing the phylogenetic tree, which is just, um, it's a hypothesis about how all of these different plants are related to one another. The fossils are really useful in terms of both providing a base for the trees, so all of the species have the same common ancestor that goes back to this very primitive plant, and that's very useful in terms of, of knowing where that uh, root occurs. What's the most impactful fossilized plant? Amborella is one of the one of the really important fossils, one of the most early earliest flowering plants that's important to to put on the tree and it's especially important to put the date because the dates of when these different groups evolved are based on assumptions about how rapidly molecular the genome of the plant changes through time. And that's, those assumptions are fairly valid, but you do need an accurate starting point to, to kind of say, well, this is where we know where this plant occurred back in the fossil record so many millions of years ago, and now we can, we can infer where these more modern uh, plants, when they, when they first appear, based on their genome. And so that's um, one of the things that's, that is really unique about our project is we did assemble the largest currently existing phylogenetic tree of plants in the, on the globe. That's a big accomplishment. I didn't necessarily contribute to that component of the project, but yeah, it's a big, it's a big accomplishment for sure. What is the history of this project? Uh, what are its roots, so to speak? So we began this research project three years ago, and it was through a working group, which is basically where a bunch of scientists can come together and work on a project at the National Evolutionary Synthesis Center, Nescent. And Nescent is in Durham, North Carolina. And the title of the, the whole project, this is just one of the papers in the project, is the Tempo and Mode of Plant Evolution. And the whole thing that really guided our project was the idea that if we can combine this really large map of how plants are related to one another with trait data, so in other words, whether or not a plant is woody or herbaceous or the size of its vascular tissue, or we have, we have traits on lots of things, with um, the climate information that I provided in the geographical distributions, we might really be able to say a lot about how this broad diversity of plant life evolved through time and what that might mean for future changes in diversity as well as um, thinking about how plants in the past really coped with environmental change. Does this work address any climate change issues? Our current paper doesn't necessarily address um, future climate change that much, but I definitely think the, that's one of the things our group is interested in, and our in the phylogenetic tree will definitely play a role in that. One of the things that it can help us um, is by looking through the past and looking at how traits changed uh, in co coordination with one another. So if, if leaf size, for example, got bigger or leaf thickness increased, what happened to seed size and how does that change whether or not um, this plant tolerated a particular climate regime? That can really tell us a lot about what we might expect um, to happen in the future. So we, we have a pretty good idea of how climate, climate's changed a lot in the past. And um, we are able to reconstruct those traits of those lineages backwards in time to see, okay, well, these clades survived that change or they adapted to that past change. How, how might then we expect diversity to change in the plants when we 
when we project forward future climate change, if we know the temperature is going to change in this part of the world or we know that drought is going to change in this way, how is that likely to affect plants and what clades are most likely to be affected? We know that in general plants are really similar uh, to their closest relatives. So um, even though there's um, many more species of plants on the earth than we have in our tree, we can still say a lot about the overall diversity of, of the plant life and, and how it's likely to change. What really fascinates you about species diversity and, and what mysteries do you hope to solve? So what's most fascinating to me is really trying to understand what ecologists sometimes refer to as community assembly rules. And so basically these are trying to understand what processes govern um, the relative abundance and diversity of species in a community. So for example, is competition between different species playing a really important role? Or maybe is the environment, as this study that we currently are talking about really is focusing on how environment has changed species. There's also dispersal and um, adaptation. Those are important ecological and evolutionary processes that I would like to be able to go out to current communities and find the signature of those processes and try to understand what their relative contribution is. That's really interesting from just kind of understanding, well, how do our systems work? But it's also really critical if we're going to manage and conserve diversity in the future. Because um, if we, you know, for example, with global climate change or with changes in fire regimes or drought, we can kind of expect, okay, if the environment is really important, then this is what we might, how we might expect the community to be changing. However, if it's primarily competition, we might expect a different set of future scenarios for how abundance and diversity might change in a, in a community. So those, those are the kinds of patterns I'm really fascinated in looking at. And as I mentioned, I primarily do that in plants and birds, but as a macroecologist, I'm also really interested in trying to find these patterns across all, all taxonomic groups. And this is something that is becoming increasingly possible because there's a kind of a cultural shift taking place in science right now where increasingly scientists are sharing their data. So for example, my mammologist friends will share their data um, with the plant people and with the bird people, and we can combine all of these different data sets to try to find some generality and synthesis across groups that can really guide us to, uh, to develop a better synthetic understanding of how communities are driven and, and shaped. And why should people care about plant evolution and this new study in particular? I think people should care because I think every day we kind of take for granted the plant adaptations we see in our own backyard. We might see a plant, we all these leaves drop, all these trees drop their leaves, and then in the spring they re-sprout their leaves. And how did that happen? It's actually recent adaptation in the lineage of plants. Um, these are relatively young clades in general. And the fascinating thing that our paper tells us is that that adaptation occurred after those plants arrived here. And so I think any time that you can have a study that really kind of takes something maybe we see every day, but we don't even really think how it, how it happened or how it came about, and we kind of provide more information on that, I think that's really exciting um, and important. Because the more we, we understand our natural system, the more we appreciate it, the more we want to conserve it, and the better we can also manage and, you know, and, and be able to uh, protect these resources for the future. You know, humans, we really depend on, on plants for so many different ecosystem services, from carbon sequestration to food and uh, medicines. And so I think the more we can kind of appreciate these organisms, for what they're, what they're doing 
and how they do that, the, the better, the more likely we are to, um, to really try to take the next step and try to preserve them and, and understand them. That was Utah State University ecologist Danny McClinton, Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. Coming up next, SQ Radio features filmmaker Sterling Harjo and his documentary film, This May Be the Last Time, premiering at the Sundance Film Festival next week. Where are the colors red and golden in the earlier winter trees? I don't know why it's hard to say what when no is right and what is wrong. Can't you see the seasons longer than it was the year before? This song's for you. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about the slavery of African Americans in the early years of Utah. First, this. The Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with support from a We the People grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. Slavery of African Americans in Utah began with the settlement of Mormon pioneers in 1847 and lasted for 15 years until the practice was made illegal in 1862. Three slaves named Green Flake, Hark Lay, and Oscar Crosby came west with the first Mormon pioneer company in 1847. According to some reports, it was Green Flake who drove the wagon that brought Brigham Young into the Salt Lake Valley. At the time, the LDS Church had no official stance regarding slavery, and the views of its leaders reflect the ambivalence of the country during this time. Joseph Smith wrote in 1836 that slaves owed their owners obedience, but also supported abolition during his 1844 presidential campaign. Brigham Young declared slaveholding to be a practice ordained by God, but was not in favor of creating a slave-based economy in Utah. In 1851, Apostle Orson Hyde said the LDS Church would not interfere in relations between master and slave. Although slavery of African Americans was never widespread in Utah, records do document the act of sale of slaves, and the federal census reports the existence of 26 black slaves in Utah in 1850 and 29 in 1860. Slavery was legal in Utah due to the Compromise of 1850, which created the Utah Territory and declared that its people could decide the slavery issue for themselves. Slaveholding was formally sanctioned by the Utah legislature two years later in 1852, although the law cautioned against inhumane treatment and stipulated that slaves could be declared free if their masters abused them. This seeming benevolence and ambivalence is misleading, however. While a few people freed their slaves in Utah before required to do so by law, the majority did so only after the U.S. Congress abolished slavery in the Utah Territory during the Civil War in 1862. Content for this episode of the Beehive Archive was provided by the Utah State Historical Society. Sources and past episodes may be found by visiting utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Visit us online at upr.org and click on the Beehive Archive link. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the College of Science at Utah State University, where students step beyond the classroom, participating in advanced research in the lab, field, and outer space. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information at usu.edu science.
Welcome to SQ Radio. This is Sherry Quinn. And I'm Susie Montgomery. Mad sound in your ears Make you feel alright We're taking the science out of SQ Radio on the program today and featuring art, cinematic art to be exact. The 2014 Sundance Film Festival starts January 16th, and we present filmmaker Sterling Harjo from Holdenville, Oklahoma. Harjo has gained critical and audience acclaim with his films across the world, and in 2006 he was the youngest and the first Native American recipient of the United States Artist Fellowship, which is supported by a consortium of major foundations. That year he also won the Creative Promise Award from Tribeca, all access for a script under the working title, Before the Beast Returns. At age 23, Harjo was accepted into the Sundance Institute's Filmmakers Lab and developed his first film, Four Sheets to the Wind. His short film, Goodnight Irene, premiered at the 2005 Sundance Film Festival and was cited for special jury recognition at the Aspen Shorts Fest. It's tough enough being an Indian these days, and now you've got this loss to deal with. second dramatic feature, Barking Water, premiered at the 2008 Sundance Film Festival, and he's back this year with a documentary feature titled This May Be the Last Time. Harjo revisits his grandfather's mysterious death and discovers how hymns play a role then and now in uniting families and communities. Harjo's personal journey starts in the songs of Oklahoma's native churches. To his astonishment, Harjo traces the influence of the songs to slavery in the deep American South and as far away as the Scottish Highlands. Sherry talked to Harjo this week at the Skywalker Ranch in Northern California, where he was putting the final touches on his film before it premieres at the Sundance Film Festival on Sunday, January 19th. We're at the Skywalker Ranch. We're doing a sound mix on the film. Because it's a film about music, it's really exciting to have it mixed here. I mean, it just, you know, like the screening rooms are amazing. You get to hear your film like it probably will never be heard again, so it's a really beautiful place to be doing this. Sterling Harjo belongs to the Muscogee Creek and Seminole tribes. He explains why his family lives in Oklahoma. My tribes were moved to Oklahoma in the 1800s, forcibly moved on the Trail of Tears to what was then Indian Territory, and that's really what brought like most of my family there. Um, and I grew up in a small town on the border of the Seminole and Creek Nation, I grew up in a town called Holdenville, and that's where all of my family's from, that area, Sasakwa, Oklahoma, and Holdenville. And, you know, I just grew up there. I grew up in a small town. It's about 5,000 people. The house that I grew up in is outside of that in the country. And I was always the, you know, I was always the kid that drew pictures, and I was a really good artist. And so I was always, that's what I, I, I from a young age, I knew that that's what I was going to do, something in art. My dad's a really good artist. But he never really pursued it. And so I feel like everyone in my life was always like, you know, encouraging me to not give up and to, to, to try to pursue art because my dad had never, my, my dad didn't pursue it. And, you know, even that's what he would say to me, you know, I wish I would have always pursued art. You should really pursue it. And so that really just kind of, I think, defined me and, and put me on this path to make, you know, make my life about art and, and, and enter that world, I think, which eventually, once I got to college, led to filmmaking. What was a typical day like for you growing up in a small town and community? It was crazy. Like, there there wasn't really a typical day, I feel like. I feel like, you know, it would depend on what I did that day. 
because sometimes I would go to town and I would go to my, I had a grandma that lived in town. I would go to her house and we would, you know, I'd hook up with a friend and we would walk the town. I mean, we just walked around. It felt like Stand By Me or something. Whenever I look back on it, the movie Stand By Me, it's like we would just walk all over the, the town. And um, I actually, like I have a 13-year-old daughter and I took her for a walk the other day in the town because I live there now again. But I took for her for a walk the other day and there was no one walking around. And I and I was talking to her. I was like, man, when I was a kid, it was like we were all just like, you know, scouring the streets and you know, I guess people are playing video games now or whatever. But, um, so that was a typical day in town. We would just like walk all over that place and find something interesting to do, I guess, you know, like we were skateboarders or whatever, you know, like we would go to a friend's house, one of my friends that lived out on this dirt road. And, um, you know, a lot of us lived on dirt roads, but I would go to my, I remember going to my friend's house and we would walk down his dirt road and go sit on this bridge and just spend hours throwing a rock at a pole. <laughs> like that was just like entertainment, just sitting there for hours, throwing a rock at a pole. And, you know, that was fun. And so, you know, we would do things like that. And, uh, but then, you know, at other times I would be with my grandma who lives out in the country. She lives way out in the country. And so, um, with my cousins out there and we would just run around and play. And those were really good memories, um, being out at my grandma's house. In the beginning of the film, which you narrate, you say this small unknown town was the whole world to you. And can you explain how, for you, what it meant, the whole world? I think as a Native person, you, you people talk to you in this way that's like, they want to learn, they want to hear what it was like being Native. If, you know, when, specifically when you're talking about songs, it's like, well, you know, what's it like? But, but growing up there, it's not... It's not like you, you don't look at yourself from the outside like other people do. That's just your life and that's your world. And so you experience it just like everyone else experiences life. So there's nothing mystical about it. There's nothing, um, there's nothing different about it. It's just the way it is. And, you know, it's not until you leave that you look back on it and realize how unique it was. And so I think that's what I mean by that. Like I, I left home and... Got to really look, you know, I lived in Oregon for a little bit in different places, and I got to really look back on where I come from, and I realized how unique it was. You know, as you grow up there, you just think everyone's like that. You know, it's like you think everyone has conversations about the dear lady in the woods who you have to watch out for, you know, or uh, different superstitions like that, or, you know, talk of like Indian medicine or like you know, someone being witched or something like that. You know, it's just like, that's daily conversation. And when you, and, and, you know, you hear these songs and it's just, you know, it's just a way of life. So you don't really have a, the perspective that you have isn't from the outside looking in on yourself. That's what I try. That's how I try to make films is like, you know, all of my films, the ones before this weren't document, were, they, they were narrative feature films. Um, and I try to tell those stories from the point of view of someone within side of that community, not not the outside looking back in on the community. Art has been a part of your life since childhood. And when you went to college, you started out pursuing your interest in painting. And how did your film interest begin? I went to the University of Oklahoma, which is like an hour and 15 minutes from my hometown. And it's, you know, it's a bigger town. It's still small, but it's a bigger town. It's a big college town. And I went there for painting school. And then eventually I took a film, film and video studies class, an intro to film and video studies. And that's really what got me interested in it and kind of like let me know that 
made me realize that it could be a career. Like I could actually make films for a living. So that's when I switched my major and started. It was mainly a theory-based program. So I was just really studying film and writing about film. When did you realize filmmaking was in your future? Uh, I don't know. You know, like I remember telling people when I first got into film and started writing scripts, I remember telling friends, I was like, I'm going to write a script, man. I'm going to have a, I'm going to make a movie. And they were like, I don't know what you're doing. You know, they didn't really believe me. And I remember telling them, I was like, in two years, I will make a film, you know, I'm going to have a film made. And, you know, it took longer than that. It was four years, but I still did it. And so I, you know, I think it was because I came from such a small town that I, I felt like, I just felt like it was, you know, when I grew up in a small town, I was like, I would, I would draw a picture and enter a contest and I'd win it. And it was like, you know, oh, this is easy, you know, I'm gonna do that. And so whenever I started making films, I never, I think that if I would have realized how many people out there are trying to make films, I probably wouldn't have done it. Um, but because I kind of have this mentality of this small town person, it just doesn't feel like the world is that big. So, so, you know, going into it with filmmaking, it was just like, oh yeah, sure. I'm going to make films, you know, people are going to check them out and people are going to see them, you know? So I, it was never, uh, it was never a thing that I worried about. How has Sundance impacted you in your film career? Sundance really changed my life, you know, like Bird Running Water from the Sundance Institute, who runs the Native Initiative, came to the University of Oklahoma while I was at school there. And someone just suggested I go listen to him speak. You know, I didn't know much about Sundance. I knew it was a film festival. I'd maybe heard about the Sundance Labs. And I went and heard him speak, and he was talking about the labs, and I was just like, that's what I need. That's what I got to do. And so it's weird because I never approach anyone like that. I never go up to anyone and talk to them, but I did with Bird and I went and talked to him. And I said, uh, I was like, Hey man, like, you know, I just want to introduce myself. Like I want, I really want to make films. And to Bird's credit, he went out, we went outside, he sat with me on a bench and just talked to me for like an hour about filmmaking and what I wanted to do. And at the end of it, he was just like, why don't you send me your script? And I just had, I just written a script. And so I sent it to him. I didn't get in with that script, but they liked it enough that they stayed in touch with me. And then I wrote another script and I got into the Sundance labs and, you know, it was just a validating thing. It was, uh, you know, it was something that like this, this world renowned organization recognizing my work, you know, out, out of 12, you know, out of like thousands of people applying, only 12 got picked and I was one of them. So, you know, it makes you feel pretty confident and good about yourself. And I remember I was roofing a house in Seminole, Oklahoma, and I was supposed to get a phone call by the Sundance. They had told me the day before, somebody wrote me and said, there's going to, they said that Michelle Satter from the Sundance program is going to call you at noon tomorrow. Can you, can you be around your phone? And I was like, yeah. And so the next day I was roofing a house in Seminole, Oklahoma with these two, these two like big bearded, redheaded biker guys. And they were brothers and they were bikers, but they didn't have any motorcycles because their motorcycles had burned in a, in a, in a barn fire, like the year before or something. So they just rode around in this little orange truck together and they never could say my name right. I remember they would always call me Spence. And I just like, you know, I had to borrow a cell phone from my dad because I didn't even have a cell phone at the time. And so at lunch, uh, I climbed off this roof. I went and sat in the car and ate a sandwich and waited on this phone call. And Michelle Satter and Lynn Auerbach from the Sundance Institute uh, called and they said, you know, we want, we want to invite you up to the Sundance Writers Lab. You know, you got in. 
and it was, you know, it was really amazing. It was, it felt like this, you know, monumental moment in my life. And, uh, I thanked him and then I got off the phone and climbed back on the roof and, you know, tried to tell these guys what had just happened. And they didn't, they had no idea what I was talking about, but so, you know, and from then I went to the labs and I got accepted to the director's lab and it really just changed my life. And it, it, it helped me be confident in what I do. I'd never worked with like a crew before until I went to Sundance. And it really just gave me the courage and, you know, helped me find a language in film that I, that I can identify with. And it also made me, you know, like coming from art school, I was pretty confident in just showing work and not caring about what people think. But Sundance really made me more confident in my work. And I, I was less precious about it. It's just like, get it out there and let people see it, you know. Your latest film, This May Be the Last Time, it's a beautiful documentary. And it reveals that the blending of three cultures from the 1800s was the first true American music, I think. And it starts with a, a story about your grandfather's disappearance and what inspired you to make this film about him and the, the native church hymns. Well, really, for me, the the idea behind this film was um, the songs. I just had always been interested in these songs. I always wanted to make a film about these songs. Um, in all of my previous films, I incorporate these songs. And it was just something that I'd always been interested in because I thought they were beautiful. And I realized that no one sang them, and I didn't know where they were from or anything. You know, like I didn't know, like we just invented them or like, you know, I, like there, no one else sings these songs in the world. So I was just always interested in them, and I knew that they were beautiful and important. And so it was always in the back of my mind. And, you know, once we started shooting the film, the grandfather thing didn't happen until then. Like it wasn't until we were interviewing people. Like I had written a little intro and a closing that was going to, it was going to be a bookend to the film, a story about my grandpa. Uh, Cause I'd always heard this story about my grandpa when they f looked for his body and they sang songs. And so, but once we started filming, I would mention that to people and they would say, oh, yeah, I was there. You know, I was there as a kid then. And, like, so it just so happened that all these people that we were interviewing happened to be there. And so I just started talking. I'd turn the cameras back on and pull the cameras out of cases and start interviewing them about my grandpa and that time that they were searching for him. Um, and so that's really what happened. It just felt like – it just felt – you know, it was interesting because it felt like the story just needed to be told. And it was time for me to tell that story on film. You know, it was a story that I always heard my grandma tell and talk to her about it. But, it, you know, I never thought about turning it into a story – uh, or filming it, and, but it was just time to do that, I think. How long did it take to make? We shot the film about in about six months, which is pretty, you know, short for some documentaries. It's But the thing was, is it's something that I'd been thinking about forever and collecting people that I wanted to interview over time. And really, it was a stroke of luck, too. We just got some amazing people uh, on camera. What was the process like making the film, and what did you discover along the way? I never knew what I was going to do as far as the story of the songs, because, you know, it's such an abstract thing. And within like native communities, like you don't, we don't have history lessons about what we do. It's not like, it's not like you sit down as a child and like, okay, this is where these songs come from and this is what they mean and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's just the act of doing it. You know, that's a very indigenous thing. I feel like as you do it, you just like, it's a part of your culture. It's a part of your life. That's how you learn them, you know? And but the key for me with these songs was I was showing my film Barking Water at RSU. And the man that brought me there was this tall, redheaded guy, a white guy named Hugh Foley. He was a professor of music and different things. And he uh, 
was talking to me. He'd brought me there. I just got through introducing the film and we sat outside on the steps and he was like, you know, I really think it's cool that you incorporate the Muskogee, uh, hymns into your, uh, into your movies. I was like, oh yeah. You know, I was like, you know, it's important for me. I want, I want people to see how beautiful they are, Creek people and see how beautiful and unique they are. And maybe they'll keep, keep them alive longer or whatever. And, uh, he was like, yeah, you know, my favorite song is, uh, and he started singing this song in Creek and I was, it kind of blew me away cause I just didn't expect him to know one of these songs, you know? And so I started talking to him about it and he told me this story of being adopted into this church kind of by marriage. And, uh, he was adopted in this church and just fell in love with the songs. And then he started talking about the history of these songs. And then it was kind of, that was kind of the key to the film for me. You know, it was like, that's, that's, uh, that opens up this other layer to the film that, that, that we need to make a story about these songs. But then once we started filming and people started talking to us, you know, they all opened up and, and it became even bigger. I feel like the film is everyone's, it's, it's like different stories about these songs. So it's not like a linear film. It doesn't go from point A to point B. It's people's stories that are connected to these songs. And then the through line is my story connected to these songs. It's of my grandpa. And so, you know, it's a bunch of just different stories that happen to feel like one movie, you know. I'm sort of proud of the fact that it's different and, and, and interesting. One of my main collaborators on the film, Matt Leach, uh, who produced and edited, you know, we talked a lot about, I mean, I remember like being at my house and not knowing what to, um, not knowing what to do with the story. And it was before the grandpa stuff really came out to the front before these people, I started talking to these people and they would happen to be from the communities. But I remember like throwing a Frisbee with him outside and just trying to figure out the structure of the film really. Um, because when we started, like we just started with this idea of these songs and, you know, I pitched this, I pitched it hard. You know, I said, you know, we can make an amazing film out of this. And then after, you know, after we got the funding and the go ahead to do it, it was like, Oh no, like hopefully we can make an interesting film out of this. So it was really just seeing what happened and being open to things that come at us whenever we're filming it. And that was the key to making it. I think if we would have went in really super structured with like everything, you know, it's going to be like this. I think that the film wouldn't have been as good because that's not how these songs are treated. And that's not how our stories are treated. So, and furthermore, like I'm, I'm a big part of the film, which I never really intended or wanted, but sometimes you have to let the story dictate where it goes and be open to things like that. And, you know, I come from a community where you're supposed to be very humble and not talk about yourself. So it was really, for me, it was really, it was really nerve wracking to put myself, my voice on camera and, and my, you know, record my voice for the film. But I think the key to that was, it was a story about my grandpa that illustrated the power of these songs. So that really made things open up for me and made me okay with everything. I wish I sounded like Werner Herzog, but I don't. In one scene of the film, you talk about change and, and how it is often seen as a negative in your community. Because so much change was forced upon us. You know, we come from the Southeast and that's where our homeland is. And that's where, you know, our religion took place. That's where we uh, prayed to certain stars and constellations. And, you know, there were different things that meant different things to us, you know, within the natural world. And it wasn't the natural world in Oklahoma. It was the natural world in the Southeast where we had set up our homes. So, you know, when people re violently remove you from your homeland and move you, um, that's change is looked at as negative. You know, it's a very negative thing because you're losing things when you change. So 
the communities that I'm from, they're very conservative in that way that they don't want change. You know, it's like change is looked at as bad because say you change these songs, you start putting music to these songs. Well, that's change and you might lose what you used to have, you know, or say that uh, you say, say at our ceremonies, you know, like we have vendors. Well, then you're going to bring a lot of spectators in that aren't really there for the ceremonial side of it. And then it's going to change and then it's going to never be the same again. So you, I, it's a, the communities that I'm from really try to hold on to what they have and um, change isn't necessarily looked at as a good thing. What songs in the film influence you the most or are the most powerful to you? One of my favorite songs is a song that one of the char- a couple of the characters sing in the film and it's called uh, Momas Komagi Halawitalovan. It's about like not never giving up and, you know, things like that. But that's something that I'd known before. But one of the songs that really blew me away was, um, there, and it's not in the film. The story's not in the film. Sometimes I wish it was, but it's, it was just really hard to fit in the film. But this song is actually at the end credits of the film. And I have Woodco singing with uh, these two sisters, the Brown sisters, and they're singing this song. But the story of this song is from the Trail of Tears. With the Muscogee Creek people, they, they, they brought... They brought the people in different groups. So sometimes families would be separated or friends would be separated or spouses and children would be separated. Um, so a lot of our songs are about reuniting with our loved ones when we get to the new land, you know. And sometimes that's looked at as heaven, but it actually sometimes means when we get to the end of the Trail of Tears, we're going to be reunited with our family. songs is just beautiful and it's a song that uh one of the sisters had written there were two sisters and they were separated on the trail and one of the sisters was up front and they're in a group way towards the front and she composed a song for her sister it basically says i will pray for you because i know that you will be praying for me wherever you are and the people learned this song as she sang it and they learned this song and they kept learning it and pushing it down the, the trail of tears, basically. Different people would be picking it up and learning it until it reached her sister. And then her sister knew, learned this song. And when they got to Oklahoma, they realized that her sister, the first sister, had written this song. And they both knew this song together. And so it's a very touching song. It sounds kind of like a lullaby. And it's just... um it's just really beautiful, and just that story behind it kind of illustrates everything that I think these songs represent. Did it surprise you at all to find out how much the songs are connected to popular American music? I was surprised to fi- I was really surprised to find out that one of the songs influenced the Rolling Stones. Yeah, I mean that blew me away. You know, it's like, but at the same time, it didn't blow me away because I know these songs are amazing, and we have another kind of songs, our ceremonial songs, which I would never make a film about because we're not allowed to. You know, it's 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 one of those things that we don't want to get out. Basically, like you don't want to have you don't, you don't want to get in the wrong hands and it change. Um, but these songs are like the they influence the blues. You know, I mean, they are the blues when you hear them, and so you know, I, I feel like in our community we know that these songs are amazing. It's not. It's not so it's not too surprising that they have the influence that they have, you know, and obviously 
it's something that's not talked about. So, but we're used to that. I feel like, you know, it's sort of, you know, in class you read about native history and it's a page, even in Oklahoma, it's just a page, even though there's 38 tribes in Oklahoma, it's still just a page in the history book. So I think we're used to not having our culture be a part of the history of the country. What do you think is the main source of courage the native peoples have had to overcome such incredible and mostly unbearable circumstances and mistreatment and how do you think other people can gain this courage to move forward? You know, I mean, I just feel like Native people are really strong. And one thing that we've always done is we've held on to, we've held on to our humor. And I think that's really been a key element to pushing through some of the hardships is, is having a good sense of humor and, and staying true to like who we are as far as like people that have a certain ceremonial way of life about them. Whether you're religious or not, it's that's the film's not a religious film, but it's about spirituality and it's about it's about singing songs to encourage yourself and it's about the history of these songs and how they actually did help people survive. So for me, I mean, I feel like everyone can learn from that, no matter who you are. You know, uh, everyone hits hard times and and everyone needs a way to get out of them, uh, and these songs are an example of that. Our works from Trudell and other great poets influential on the songs they don't influence these songs at all you know these songs come from the 1800s or before so it's uh they don't change you know like they've been written a long time ago no one's writing you know there's not a lot of new songs that are being written so they're sort of their own deal i trudell you know i know him and he's a he's a uh, friend of mine but i wonder if he's ever heard these songs (laughs) i'll have to send him one what is your hope for the future of your community I hope for the future in the community that, you know, I would love for them to have an awareness of how unique they are and how beautiful some of these things are in their culture and, and really celebrate them and keep them and preserve them and make an effort to learn them, you know, like have big people, you know, encourage people to, to learn these songs and sing them, you know, and use them in their life because they're beautiful and it's what their ancestors did. And, you know, I just think that letting people know how unique they are is really helpful. And I feel like that has what that's what I've done in all of my films is really try to just highlight how unique the people that I come from are. And as far as the film goes, I'm not, you know, like I've been nervous in the past at Sundance showing films there, you know, worried about reception or, you know, like being nervous about it. But with this one, I'm not. It's just like, you know, if you don't feel it, then there's something wrong with you. So if, if someone doesn't like it, it's up to them. But um, I'm I'm very happy with the film, and I think it it I think it strikes a sort of beautiful tone that that I feel like people will get into. So I look forward to seeing it with people. And what's next for you? I actually have a feature film that I wrote. It's pretty dark, uh, sort of a dark. It's like a thriller <laughs> um, that takes place in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I'm making that, I'm shooting that in March, actually, which is just right around the corner. So that's crazy. And then, you know, hopefully after that, I don't know, I would like to make more money at this. So that would be a good thing. That's my goal in 2014. Um, We just have time for one more question. What would you like to tell listeners about? This may be the last time. Check out the film. I think it's a film that people of any walk of life would be interested in and, and find appealing. So it'll probably be you know, traveling around and just hope people can check it out. Hopefully learn something from my community in these songs and uh, gain something from it in their life. Thank you for listening. That was filmmaker Sterling Harjo. SQ Radio is produced by Sherry Quinn and Susie Montgomery. Oh, ah.
Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 3. Offering daily soups, including Clam Chowder Friday, on the last Friday of the month. On From the Top, we don't just put young people on the show to hear their incredible musical performances, we celebrate the whole kid. We're all members of the Vermont Astronomical Society, and uh, we've also gotten really into building telescopes. I run cross country and I run track. Well, I'll eat anything as long as it's not looking at me as, and as long as it's not moving around. I believe the correct term is math stud. Join me, Christopher O'Reilly, to meet America's most outstanding young musicians on From the Top each week from NPR. Friday afternoons at 2, repeated Sunday nights at 9 on Utah Public Radio.